0: Well, I think it's been about three weeks since we met last to talk about the Lord's Prayer, so I'm going to give a very quick recap slash crash course on where we've been. Remember, this prayer shows up to us two places in the New Testament. First, in Matthew 6, where we're more familiar with that version of it, and that's where we are in our passage tonight, and in Luke 11 and remember Jesus attaches special instructions to both of those prayers and Luke 11 he says when you pray say this and in Matthew 6 when he says uh, when he mentions his prayer he says when you pray pray like this and collectively together we can see how this prayer instructs us not only how to pray but informs us also how to live what the christian life looks like and it can be divided up into several parts We've broken it up into about nine sections. First, there's an invocation, that is invoking um, the, uh, the one to whom we're praying. And then there's seven petitions, and finally it ends with a closing and worshiping doxology. Now, three of those petitions, which we've already covered, have been petitions to the Father. And four are about the family. So up until this point, we've invoked who? the Father. And who is this Father? He's Jesus' own Father, who is now our Father through Jesus. And then we've asked this Father for his name to be hallowed, for God to be who God is to us. And we've asked for his kingdom activity, the way that he would run things, um, or the way he runs things in heaven, to come down here on earth as well. And last time, we shifted Uh, into the petitions for, um, we shifted from the petitions to the father for, or rather to positions about the family. So we've asked God to give us our daily bread. And that's a way of just saying that we ask that he provide all that we need, not just for ourselves, but for our brothers and sisters around us. Even if that means that he provides for them through us helping to provide for them. And that brings us uh, tonight to perhaps one of the more challenging petitions in this prayer. Augustine called this the terrible petition. And I think he's on to something in saying that because it's so difficult. This petition is forgive us as we forgive. And that is not an easy thing to do. Now, West Hill uh, tells the story, New Testament professor West Hill tells the story about his friend who brought his uncle to church one Sunday, and right before they were about to take communion together, the pastor prayed this. He said, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed, now, this really seemed to upset the uncle, who later talked to his nephew about it and, and asked him. He, sh- he, he essentially said, should we really expect everyone to confess that they've sinned? Is really everyone in, in need of that prayer? What about the Christians that gain victory over sin that week? Surely there's somebody in this congregation that this confession isn't true for them. Well, I think that's a, that's a good question for us to ponder. It's a very challenging question. And what we assume when we pray this prayer or prayers like it is that we all, even recently, have sinned and so that we all make this confession honestly. So when we pray, forgive our debts or forgive our sins or trespasses as we have been forgiven, we're assuming that we have sinned. So, what is, so so? what do we make of ideas like victorious Christian living or of, of ongoing sanctification? What do we make of those ideas in light of this prayer? But I think this raises an even more important question for us to address. What do you think Jesus, and telling his disciples when they pray to say this, telling us when we pray, pray like this, what do you think Jesus was assuming when he gave this prayer to Christians. I think Luke's gospel, maybe even more clearly than Matthew for us, spells this out. Debts and and trespasses seem either just too monetary or it has to do with property, but Luke is clear. Forgive us our sins, he says, as we forgive those who sin against us. So I, I think the assumption is that Jesus is saying that when we pray this, We can always pray it truthfully in some way. Now, that's not an anomaly to Jesus. That's not unique to him. For instance, if you consider other places in the New Testament, I think of the Apostle John's words and his first letter. He addresses those um, who are in the community of faith, but deluded enough, I guess, um, to think that they've never sinned before when they came to faith. And now that they've been baptized and are part of the community, everything's square. And there's really no reason to think any anything negative about themselves. And he addresses this in chapter 1, verse 10. He says, if we say we have not sinned, meaning in the past we've not sinned before, then we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So to say that we have no sin is to indict the true God, and to call him a liar and say that we know better than he does. Would any of us dare call Christ a liar? Of course not. But I don't think most of us have a problem with admitting that we have sinned in the past. I don't think anybody, for the most part, has a problem with saying, I've sinned in the past, I've done things wrong. I don't think Christians have a problem with that. But here's the more challenging verse, and this is in verse 8. He says, if we say we have no sin, not that we have not sinned, but we have no sin, as in we have no sin now, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. You see the difference in the change verb tense? In the first uh, verse that we read, in verse 10, he says, we have not sinned, versus we have no sin. So we cannot honestly say either that we've never sinned in the past or that we are totally free from sin in the present. Now, the Reformers, I think, understood this well and saw this clearly in Scripture. Although we are saved, we are called saints by the apostles because of what Christ has done for us. We believe that we are being sanctified by the Spirit That may all be true, but the scriptures seem pretty clear that although we are being, um, the outward man is uh, wasting away, the old old person that we were is vanishing and the inward man is being renewed, that we aren't quite living a sin-free life yet. Not totally anyways. Sin is like a deep-rooted disease, as it turns out. It's not easily obliterated or washed away. And the Book of Common Prayer, this great document of the Reformation, the way they say it is so clear. They say, this infection of nature remains, of our first nature, of our human nature. This infection of nature remains. Yes, even in those who are regenerated, meaning even those of us who are alive in Christ, we're still dealing with a sin nature in some way. Now, this, I think, causes us to really have to stop and discuss what the nature of sin actually is. Now, when we talk about sin, I think it's often a caricatured uh, view of sin. So we think of sin as doing little naughty, misbehaving, childish things that we shouldn't do. That's one side of it. Sneaking a cookie jar before, before dinner or, or letting a not-too-polite word... A curse word slip out of our lips when we're frustrated, or or in anger, or something like that. So we think of sin as these little peccadilloes that we have, that aren't really that bad, but they're they're not polite, or they're not you know you, they're not accepted in in uh, 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 civilized context. So there's that thinking about sin, or perhaps we think sin is really only big stuff. So some people would say, well, they're not a sinner because I've never. You know, I've, I've never murdered somebody in cold blood. I, I've never cheated on my spouse. I've never robbed a bank. I've never shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. So it's, it's big stuff, you know. But Jesus, as well as the whole of the New Testament, seems to think that sin is merely just a way of, ex- of how we exist apart from God. It's just sort of the de facto state of how things are, Sin is living according to human, wis- human wisdom, acting according to our own desire. It's such a pervasive and abysmal reality. It's deeper and wider and more radical and enmeshed in us than we could ever imagine. Uh, being Living as a, as a human being in this world is like a, is a, a, a fish swimming in an ocean and, and trying not to get salt water. On him it's impossible it's just we are so um, absolutely bogged down by the reality of it that it's not just single moments of minor indiscretion neither is it just uh, these big terrible atrocities it's so much more than that we can't rise above sin by our good deeds because we are so mired in it and not only are we bogged down in it but if you were to cut us open we would spill out sin. We are just utterly controlled and dominated by sin. Now, even if we resist temptations to tell a fib or if we restrain from doing something more serious, somebody gets us irritated and we've restrained cursing them and and, and wishing they were dead or, or just physically fighting them, even if we've resisted those minor temptations What we've done is we've merely not done what we should not do. We've not done anything good. We've just resisted doing the bad thing. So this is tricky here, but I think Augustine is right on the money with this. You know, Augustine was this great theologian in the early centuries of the church. He was from northern Africa, and I think he understood this well. And It gives a great, I think, example for us of what we're talking about. So he suggests that, say we have made enormous moral progress. We've really grown in godliness. We've inculcated virtues in ourselves. We have good habits of, of, of prayer and Bible reading and, and giving of alms and ministering to the poor and serving in church. Say we're doing all that stuff, that's good, that's fine. But he reminds us, what is the heart of God's law as told by Jesus himself? In the Gospels, what does Jesus say is the, is the heartbeat of the Old Testament, of, the, of God's covenant? He says it's this, to love God and to love neighbor. But he clarifies how we love God. We don't just love God. We love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, every aspect of us, from our bodies to our wills to our minds to our desires, all of us are to love God thoroughly, with no part of us not loving him. And to love our neighbor, not just you know, be nice to him, love our neighbor as ourself. So, do we love God? Yeah, sure we do. Do we love our neighbors? Yeah, of course, we've got some people around us we really like. But what does the law actually tell us? What does Jesus say that we actually must do? He says that we must love God with all our heart. We must love God with all of our mind, all of our strength, all of our very being. We must love God. Can any one of us honestly say that all the time our whole desire is to love God, to be totally, completely, 100% invested in him and nothing else? No. If you think that, you're delusional. And let's just make it even simpler because loving God can seem so abstract. Now, if I were to ask, if I were to go around this room and ask, have you loved your neighbor as yourself? The person that lives right next to you and the person that lives uh, on the other side of you. The people that you interact with in your, uh, that maybe don't live close by to you, but you interact with in life. The people that you work with. Your spouse, your, your children. Do you love your neighbors as yourself? We can really then say, no, I've not loved. So, So we can see that... If we if we're just giving a bare bones honest answer about ourselves, that we would have no uh, no not a square inch of religious pride in us about our love of God or neighbor. So even if we're not doing anything, um, you know these these bad things, we can see we're not really living up to God's law. We're falling far short of that. And so if Jesus is really serious, and I think he is when he talks about this in in the, the Sermon on the Mount, if he's serious that hating your brother is as bad as murder, then I can say pretty confidently, I don't think any of us in this room is without blood on our hands to some degree. The English writer Francis Spufford talks about this as the The self-pleasing smirk, that's what he calls it. The same attitude uh, we have if we were to murder somebody or if we were just to slander their character or gossip about them because we couldn't stand them. It's that same self-pleasing smirk within us that elevates us above them and makes us people that are victimizers and makes the people around us who we hurt either because we're stabbing them or we're stabbing them in the back. Uh, metaphorically, it makes them our victims. Now, all of that is troubling enough, I think. And we see that we have many sin debts that must be forgiven. But here's the probably even more troubling part, <laughs> if we haven't been beat down enough already. This prayer says, forgive us, As we forgive, oh gosh, now we're in serious trouble here. What is this forgive us as we forgive business? Is is Jesus telling us that our forgiveness is solely contingent, solely conditioned on how we are able to forgive, on our ability to forgive? Is that what he's saying? Now, this is something that has been interpreted many different ways throughout the centuries. And again, I think that reformers, the early Protestants, really wrestled with this. Because remember, they were living in a world um, where the church was one of the supreme authorities alongside the state. And so church doctrine and culture at that time, had kind of, it kind of devolved and, and warped into a sort of spiritual bartering system. And that's where things like indulgences come into play that if you um, essentially if uh, if you haven't lived a, a, a worthy life or done enough good deeds then you can pay a certain monetary value and tap into the the pool of the saints good deeds the really you know the really good people and take a little bit of that mercy and apply it to that old bum of an uncle that you have that's surely burning in hell because. He was a real layabout, and so it, it, we really, in the medieval era, a lot of Christianity kind of devolved into sort of a pagan bartering system, um, and so the reformers were were really uh, really pushing back against this because the what they were reading in scripture, the Jesus that they were finding in scripture doesn't seem to have a category for this kind of thinking. So people that came to God with these supposedly virtuous actions, the idea is that they could use them as we might use cash uh, to, to, for God to dispense mercy. So if, I'm, if I do enough good in the world or I resist enough sin, we can change that for some God's divine mercy and quite literally monetize it. And this caused a lot of people to live in fear because it made their their the, the the basis of their relationship with God a completely transactional one. That there was really no good news to be had, there was no security that Christ had paid for the sins of the world, that Christ had 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 bought their redemption, but that they needed to um uh they needed to appease him in some way. And this led people like Martin Luther to say, even though he was a devout uh, Augustinian monk, who, by the way, probably knows knew more of the Bible by the time he was in his mid-20s than we'll ever know, and it was so devout, would do so many prayer services a day, would do all these things. It led him in his private confessions to say he hated God because he felt like no matter what he did, he could never quite be good enough because he was honest. He was honest about himself. And if you read Luther, you really see he was—he's kind of, in many ways a good theologian, but he was kind of a pig of a man in a way. I mean, he was gross and vulgar, and in other words, he was just like us. You know, he just didn't put on the airs that we do when we come to church. Um, but he so he could see that this this just beat him down. How could anyone ever be assured of God's love or grace unless they? We're supernaturally spiritual in some way, but eventually Luther learned, and he learned this from the scriptures. This is not just made up Protestant theology. That if we think our generosity towards others is somehow the thing that gets us off the divine hook, we're actually showing we we're not really being generous. We're treating these other people as as um, as uh, as currency in some ways. Our actions as Christians, ought to be motivated by love, love of God, love of neighbor, not this sort of self-preservation where it makes anything we do not really because we have any compassion or desire for God or, well, desire for God and compassion for one another. It it just makes it about, um, you know, how can we make sure that our bacon's not going to fry? And so Wes Hill points out that this is... uh, uh, um, that any actions that are motivated by self-preservation, even if they're good actions, aren't really motivated truly by love of God and love of neighbor. And so really aren't good actions. They're really not generous actions. So how ought we to read this prayer? I mean, if we if, it, if we forgive only so that we can be forgiven, then we're not really forgiving because it's we love God and we love others. We're forgiving only because... You know, we don't want to be punished. So how do we think about this? How do we read this prayer? Well, Calvin, I I think, has a a good scheme for reading this. In his great magnum opus, The the Institutes of the Christian Religion, I think it's in Book 3, he addresses this. Um, He says of these exact verses, specifically this exact verse, chapter 12, or verse 12 of chapter 6, he said, We must note that this condition... That God forgive us as we forgive our debtors is not added because by the forgiveness we grant others, then we deserve forgiveness. So in other words, it's not a transactional, it's not a bargaining thing. As if our forgiveness indicated the cause of his forgiveness of us. So in other words, he's saying God doesn't forgive us because we're really good forgivers. And if we don't forgive, then he won't forgive us. That's not what this is actually saying. But Calvin picks up on what Paul makes clear in his letters, that our pardon is never because of our goodness or wisdom or forgiveness of other people or anything that we could boast in. We're never forgiven because of what we do, even if we do a good thing. On the contrary, we're made capable of forgiveness. Why? Because Paul tells us in in Ephesians 4.32, because God and Christ first forgave us. So he made that condition, he made our ability to forgive um, uh, a part of how he forgave us. So he forgave us first, and now that we've been transformed by that, we can then forgive. So again, I'll read exactly what Paul says. Ephesians 4.32, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. So that's the thing that comes first. So if we change this verse around, God forgave you in Christ, therefore, be kind and compassionate and forgiving to one another. So let's get the, let's get the horse before the cart here. And Calvin goes on to say this. This is the way we must interpret this petition. By this word, the Lord intended partly to comfort the weakness of our faith. See, if we were left to our own devices, if it was just about if we've been forgiving enough or, uh, or generous enough in our uh, responses to people, we would live like the medieval Christians did, constantly under condemnation and burden. But he added this as a sign to assure us that he granted forgiveness of sins to us just as surely as we are aware of having forgiven others, provided our hearts have been emptied and purged of all hatred, envy, and vengeance. In other words, that's this is to say this. When we look in our lives and we can forgive somebody, and we really can say, it's done, it's, 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 it's over, it's dealt with. The reason why we can do that in the first place is we know that Christ has forgiven us. So that should be a comforting sign to you. If someone hurts or betrays you, then your ability to forgive them shows that Christ has forgiven you. And so you don't stand condemned before God or anybody else. In other words, Jesus isn't offering a condition for our forgiveness. He's not saying, I'll forgive you if you forgive them. Rather, he's offering us an illustration of what it's like for us to be forgiven. That is that we have God's disposition to forgive others now too. I mean, really think about this. Let's just get practical. We've we've been pretty abstract tonight. Let's think about this practically. Think about a concrete moment in your life when you've forgiven someone. I mean, really forgiven someone that's hurt you bad. Really bad. When a spouse or a sibling or a friend admitted with a broken heart how they've maybe intentionally hurt you or neglected you or humiliated you or intentionally frustrated and misunderstood you. Can you remember at those moments where there is a, a tension in your relationship, there's a rift in your relationship, and that person came to you brokenhearted and said, I'm sorry, can you remember a surge of compassion swelling up in you? And how although they had wounded you, you wanted nothing more than to comfort this person in return. Can you think of examples like that in your life? I know that's not an easy thing to conceive of because if we've really been hurt, it's, it's, forgiveness is a costly thing. If you let go of, of, of the justice that you should be claiming over somebody, that means that you are paying the penalty, not them. But that feeling I think we've all had when someone's hurt us, but they come to us sorrowfully and say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And you want to say nothing more than, I forgive you, it's over with. That is how Jesus Christ feels about you. And that's how you get to feel now as, as his body towards others that have hurt you. So what greater honor or privilege or joy could you have in this life, than to share in Christ's own love for your brother or sister or anybody that comes to you in repentance. To be able to be a conduit through which they receive God's, they're reminded of God's forgiveness because you forgive them. And you're reminded that God's forgiveness is being worked out in you because you're able to forgive them. Now, as we draw to a close, I just want to address what, um, maybe some of us have been thinking about what may seem like a discrepancy that we've we've already mentioned both in the in the KJV and the CSB Bible that's our Pew Bible, the one I preach from on Sundays. Um, it says "Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors." Now traditionally I've spoken with several of you about this. you remember in church whatever denomination it may have been in, you've said this in your recited versions of this prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And yet some other translations still will say, as Luke does, I'm pretty sure in both the King James and, uh, and the Christian Standard Bible, maybe ESV and NIV, I'm not totally sure. But it says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So what's the deal? Why are there so many... Discrepancies here. Well, in reality, they're all communicating the same idea. They just take different translational cues with it. Now, I'll, I'll, I, the scholars think that this is because Jesus is speaking in Aramaic, probably when he's teaching, which is the common vernacular of the day. That became kind of the common language of the Jewish people after they left Persia and came back. That's where the Aramaic originated from. And after they had been, you know, exiled for so long and that became um, uh, a more popularized language like Greek did in the generation after it, um, that was just probably a common tongue that they spoke in. And so the word that Jesus used, that uses probably in Aramaic, um, could denote sin. But the way that the Greek world and the Jewish world think about sin is differently. So Luke and Matthew translate these words differently. So Luke, you remember, is writing primarily to a Gentile, maybe a Greek crowd. And they understand the idea of sin as a trespass against some law, as a transgression against a neighbor. So it's when you you go beyond the bounds of what you're supposed to do in the life of somebody or, or something. That's the main way they conceived of sin as an idea. And that's the crowd to which Luke is writing, so he uses the word that's closer to sin or trespass. But Matthew, who's writing to a Jewish crowd, picks up on this idea of sin as an indebtedness to God. Now, God is the giver of life, and when we disobey him, we enter into a moral debt with God, where we've we've um, God is giving us life, and us sinning against him is is vandalizing the gift that he's given us in some way. So him writing to a primarily Jewish crowd that's more familiar with this idea, uses the term for debt. But what's the key of both of these ideas? It's, in either case, the focus of the problem, whether it's sin or trespass or debt, it all has to do with with sin, whatever we end up calling it. So uh, theologically speaking, I think it's, Good and appropriate to use any of those terms interchangeably, but that's why there's differences there, and that and that's why um, uh, uh, that's why we'll probably run into some hesitancies when we come to that portion of the prayer and can't remember do we say trespasses or debts or sins. Ultimately, they all are pointing to the same thing, so it's okay if we have a little different way of speaking about it. But for our purposes, I've chosen because of the major translations that we use in the English language, um, at least in Matthew's gospel, go with the word debts. Um, That's just what we'll use. Um, But we'll stick with the tradition on that. But you can say trespasses or sins, and you're saying the same thing. But that's the idea behind it. But that brings me to sort of a a last thing I I want to think about here. Now, in terms of debt... I think we get a clear idea about how this works in terms of indebtedness and sin when we go to the example of Jesus' parable and Matthew 18 of the unforgiving servant. And so you may remember that that story starts off with with Peter, who's probably a little bit prone to a quick temper, who knows what may have sparked this in his life, but he says, To Jesus, essentially, Lord, how often do I have to forgive my brother if he sins against me? It's a great question from Peter because how often do we want to ask that? How many times do I have to forgive this idiot in my life (laughs) that is just causing me all kinds of grief? And you remember how Jesus answers? Now, you know, some may say seven, but I say seven times seventy. And the the idea is not that you get to four hundred ninety, and then that four hundred ninety first time, all bets are off. But you you forgive them uh, an an unbelievable amount. The idea of us forgiving anybody in our life for doing anything four hundred ninety times is unimaginable. But then he goes on to tell a story to help visualize. This idea of debt, morally speaking, in this parable, there is a servant, a man who owes about ten thousand talents. Now, roughly, this, you know, inf- inflation is never; um, it's always changing, and so it's never. In my estimation, is probably not a good idea to say, "Oh, that's you know, this billion dollars," that because that can always fluctuate. But roughly, in Jesus' own day, what that's equivalent to, probably, this is crazy. 10,000 talents is probably equivalent to 200,000 years of wages. That's an impossible debt, in other words. One commentator notes that if you were to take all of the due tax to the Roman Empire from all the parts of that region of Judea and Samaria and all that stuff, that outer region you would probably get 6,000 talents worth of money from literally everybody. And so add another 4,000 talents to that. That's what one person owes, not hundreds of thousands of people or millions of people even. So in other words, it's an unpayable, unimaginable debt. And this man comes begging this king to be merciful. And what happens? The king absolves the debt forgiven it's done no strings attached and then you remember what happens next this man who was owed a debt of uh uh, essentially a hundred days wages uh, not 200,000 years wages but a hundred days wages goes to the man to collect from him and uh he says I don't have it and he gets him thrown in debtor's prison and when the king hears about this he's so outraged at this first man that he has him thrown in prison he says you'll be tortured until you can repay back what you owe you, meaning you'll never be able to pay it back but it's a stark reminder to us that as the christian community what we are are people that are a we're a forgiven community we are forgiven and absolved and 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 we don't have to pay back a debt that's quite literally unpayable. And so because we are a forgiven community, we must then in turn be a forgiving community. We cannot say that we are forgiven of all of our debts and then turn around and be petty with one another. That doesn't respect, or that that doesn't reflect rather, the spirit in which we've been freed from our debt. And so this just king who looks upon his servant, just as our king looks upon us, a poor and hopelessly indebted servants. What does the Bible say? How does this king look on, on this man? It says he looks on him with compassion. He is, he is in debt, not only up to his eyeballs, but up to the top of the Eiffel Tower and then again. But the Lord looks on him with compassion. Paul takes up this idea, again, in Ephesians 4, he says, where he calls us to be compassionate, tenderhearted with one another, just as God was compassionate and tenderhearted with you. And Peter tells us, he gives us the stark reality of it, that we're going to be called by God, we are called by God, to be good and to endure even unjust suffering as God and Christ already did for us. So Paul tells us the ideal of what we must be. Uh, we must be f- compassionate and tender-hearted. And Peter says, yes, but the reality is you're gonna have to do good and endure, and you're gonna suffer because people aren't going to respond in the ideal way. Nevertheless, God called you to be compassionate and tender-hearted. So you must be that way. And what all this suggests to me is that we can be sure that God is at work in us, um, the God that is at work in us, uh, as, 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 as difficult as this might be for us, um, to or God has forgiven us, and so he's at work in us so that we would strive to be forgiving to one another and to have compassion on each other as Christ had compassion on us. And because we have been forgiven, we, like God himself, like Christ himself, can experience the otherworldly joy of reconciliation that comes when somebody repents and we're able to forgive them. Now, the reality of this world is, too, that there are many people that are not going to repent and will don't think they've wronged you or know they've wronged you and just don't care. Nevertheless, we are to be compassionate and tenderhearted to be uh, good and even endure what they've done to us as God has called us to do. So what's incumbent upon us is not to make sure they repent. What is incumbent upon us, although that's, you know, Jesus tells, hey, if a brother sins against you, you can rebuke him and and then he'll repent and then you must forgive him. That's in the Bible too. You can rebuke somebody that's sinned against you, but you, your disposition is, must be like how Jesus' disposition is towards you. You've damaged the relationship. You've destroyed the trust, and yet his heart is compassionate and tender towards you. I want to read, just in closing, um, of course, Malcolm Guy has such a wonderful series of sonnets on the Lord's Prayer. And And and, and this sonnet that's called Forgive as We Forgive, he says this, Forgive as we forgive, the prayer you give us. It comes home so close yet radiates so far. We set the limits on our own forgiveness, as generous or grudging as we are. The wounds we give and take and all our weakness, the injuries that smolder, burning slow, the sins that others visited upon us and ours to hold or utterly let go. You tell the story of the wretched debtor, the one forgiven everything he owed, who then exacted payment to the letter from one who could not bear the given load. Oh, lift my given load that I, forgiven, might give away forgiveness free as heaven. And so, Christians, church, we are bold to pray together, Our Father, who art in heaven, And all God's people said, amen, 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 and you are dismissed.